السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله Okay, so uh, we're going to start the uh, second afternoon session and this will be the final session for the day. There will be no more breaks. We're going to start off with uh, a short Q&A. Uh, the sister asks, is it permissible for a wife or daughter to visit her husband's or father's grave if there is no male in the family? Bismillah walhamdulillah wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. It's not permissible for a Muslim woman to visit a grave under any circumstances. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said La'ana Allah za'irat al-qabur That Allah cursed the women who visit the graves And in a narration La'ana Allah zawarat al-qabur That Allah cursed the women who frequently visit the graves No doubt some of the scholars allowed it Based on the narration zawarat And they said that it only is frequently visiting that is the problem However, we don't want our sisters in Islam to be exposed to the curse of Allah Azza wa Jal. And so we advise them that at the end of the day, you can make dua for the person. They have not been forgotten. And Allah Azza wa Jal has not forgotten them. And they are either in a state of blessing or in a state of punishment. And both of those can be, uh, you know, the situation can be rectified by dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if they're in a state of blessing, then your visit doesn't make any additional benefit to them. So at the end of the day, we advise our sisters in Islam not to visit the graves because of the hadith, لَعَنَ اللَّهِ زَائِرَاتِ الْقُبُورِ May Allah curse the women who visit the graves. Okay, we'll take the uh, question from the brother section. Uh, Sheikh, uh, I would like to ask about Hatib ibn Abi Balta's hadith. Uh, this hadith actually, is, is it not it's specific to... Uh, the Badri Sahabi, that he, if he commits a, a, a crime of uh, such magnitude, he is uh, basically pardoned. Is, isn't it specific for the uh, Sahaba from Badri? No, it can't, it can't be because you can't have a Sahabi who is forgiven for kufr. Sahabi or no Sahabi, the Quran was revealed to the Sahaba and Allah said, Inna Allah la yushraka bih. Uh, And you can't have in Islam any sin that is any kufr that is expiated by a good deed that is takes you outside of Islam and we have to remember the Sahaba despite their status they are still people under the laws of Islam and the laws of Islam are not accepted for them you know under any circumstances at the end of the day the same Quran was revealed and uh, in this case this case of Hatib is not that he uh, is not that he was exempted by this and in fact, some of the narrations indicate this because Umar thought that he was a munafiq. And yet the Prophet ﷺ affirmed for him that he had iman because of the reason that he gave. That he didn't do so out of a hatred of Islam or a desire to see Islam fail. But he did so because of his fear of his family. And anyone who is in a similar situation, inshaAllah ta'ala, they are guilty of, of course, of a major sin. And the major sins can be expiated by the likes of participation in the battle of Badr and so on and so forth. But as for disbelief, no. And that's why those people who participated in the battles with the Prophet ﷺ and then they disbelieved after his death or they disbelieved uh, at some point, they were considered to be apostates even though they participated in the battles with the Prophet ﷺ. So we don't say this is unique for, for Hatib, but rather this is something that applies uh, to all those people in those circumstances And it's quite If we look at it, it makes a lot of sense 
because the one there is a difference between uh, the one who is motivated by uh, let's say a failing in their in their strengths of their iman and the one who is motivated by a desire to see Islam fail and so the two are the two are different inshallah um, I have a, I have four questions or four points to make just as clarifications to some of the stuff that was previously said. Um, one of the sisters asked two questions about the zakah, and I just want to uh, clarify a couple of points. Having read some of the fatawa, I think the answer was fine, but I just want to make sure that a couple of points are clear. With regard to zakah on behalf of someone else, it's critical that the person who owes the zakah gives permission for them to do so. And the ulama say, if they don't give permission, the zakah is not accepted. So I'll give you an example. The person says, I've already paid your zakah. But you didn't know they had paid your zakah. And you didn't have the intention for them to pay your zakah. In this case, wallahu alam, it seems the zakah hasn't been paid. The zakah is paid when they say, can I pay your zakah for you? Yes, you can. Because of the hadith, innamal a'malu bin niyat that your actions are according to your intentions and you have to therefore have the intention of, of, uh, of giving the zakah and you can't have it that, oh yeah, you know, last week I gave 20,000 pounds and so inshallah your zakah is included in it. There has to be the intention there. Uh, the second question, the sister asked regarding white gold and I think regarding platinum. With regard to white gold, uh, as far as I can see, white gold is gold mixed with platinum. And the zakah is only upon the gold and not upon the platinum. And the way to do it is, is to judge the value of the platinum and the value of the gold. And maybe a goldsmith would help you in that. That you take a white gold ring and you weigh the, uh, you know, the white gold. And you ask the, the goldsmith the value of the gold in the ring. Because platinum, and I said I would get back to you on that, has no zakah. Because at the end of the day, zakah is upon gold and silver. And it's not upon copper, nor is it upon brass, no matter how beautiful they are, nor is it upon iron or upon any of the other metals. So the, it is upon gold and silver only. So what you would do is the, the ring may be 90% gold and 10% uh, platinum. In which case, the platinum, let's say the, let's say the ring is 1,000, uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, the ring is 1,000 dirhams. In that 1,000 dirhams, 200 dirhams is on the platinum and 800 dirhams is a part of the gold. So you count the part of the gold and Allah knows best. However, if it becomes difficult for you, you can count the whole thing, inshallah, and the extra will be sadaqah because perhaps it will only be very small and perhaps it might be 97% gold and 3% platinum, in which case it's very little difference and you can just count the whole thing as if it was gold and give the zakah value on that. But the most important thing is that the zakah is upon the gold and not upon the platinum. And just a brother asked me a question, and I think it is important to clarify. I probably didn't, didn't say this as clearly as I would have wished to have said it. Um, with regard to lesser shirk, I didn't say that you will be punished forever. With regard to lesser shirk, I simply said that the person who dies having committed lesser shirk will not be let off the hook. Not that they will be punished forever because they haven't committed kufr. They have simply committed a major sin. But this is a major sin and Allah knows best. And the ulama disagree about this. But some of the ulama said regarding the ayah inna allaha la that this means that the lesser shirk will also not be let off the hook. I.e. the person will be taken to account for it. Maybe 
that will be taken into account by losing some of their deeds. Maybe it will be by a punishment on the day of judgment. Maybe a punishment in the grave. Maybe a punishment in the hellfire for a time. But it will not be let go. It will not just be overlooked. As will the the rest of the major sins. Perhaps Allah will overlook them and say, doesn't matter, I forgive you for them. As Allah forgave the companion who cut off his fingers. But with regard to lesser shirk, some of the scholars say, and I think this is a fair statement, that, uh, that the ayah is general and that major and minor are both included in the ayah. But of course, major means you'll be in hell forever and lesser shirk means that you will be not let off the hook for it, basically. Something will happen to you, one thing or another, something will happen to you for it if you haven't repented in this life. And of course, the way to repent from lesser shirk uh, apart from your regular tawbah is to make the dua Allahumma inni a'udhu bika and ushrika bika wa ana a'lam wa astaghfiruka lima a'lam oh, oh Allah I seek your refuge in making a partner with you while I know and I seek your forgiveness for what I do when I don't know Assalamu alaikum brother um, I just want to ask on behalf of my sister that was the ruling on a Muslim to a Muslim calling the other one you're a munafiq. Okay. Uh, the word munafiq here, the general understanding of the word munafiq, is that it is the same as kafir. Now, we said there is nifaq, i'tiqadi and nifaq amali. But generally, when you say to somebody the word, you're a munafiq, at the end of the day, this word munafiq, the first thing that comes to mind is the kafir munafiq. And so this is the same ruling as the hadith we studied on the one who says to their brother or sister, you're kafir. So at the end of the day, the sin of it comes back to one of the two. So if she is a munafiq, the sin will come onto her. And if she's not a munafiq, then the sin will come onto the person who says it. And so they should be very, very, very careful about saying to somebody, you're a munafiq. And to me, it's the same as saying to somebody, you're a kafir. I mean, okay, they could turn around and say, I don't mean the nifaq. That, but that's not the apparent meaning. It's like if you say to somebody, you're a kafir. And they say, oh, you know, the sin is on you. Say, no, no, I meant you're a kafir of the blessings of Allah. It's not what is apparent in the statement. If you say to somebody you're a munafiq, you're making takfir uh, of them and you're declaring them to be outside of Islam. And so it's a very serious uh, statement to make and the sin will come to one of them. The questioner asks, uh, my mother is a Shia. They curse the Sahaba, their shahada is different and they only pray three times a day. Is she a kafir? Again, uh, we mentioned very clear, clearly on the topic of takfir the difference between making takfir of an individual and making takfir in a general sense. In a general sense, anybody who holds the Sahaba to be kuffar and anyone who curses the Sahaba and anyone who uh, considers it permissible to abandon part of the prayer, then they are not a Muslim. However, applying that to an individual is something that shouldn't be done in a forum like this. And it should be done, you know, as a matter taken very, very, very seriously. There's no doubt that the situation your mom is in is a very severe situation, a very serious one. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, to guide uh, those of us who our parents uh, are not Muslim, to guide them to Islam. Amen. And uh, subhanAllah, this is a very serious situation. And it needs a lot of work. But rather than worrying about them being Muslim or not Muslim, what you really need to worry about is how you can get them to, to leave that. And uh, there are some wonderful resources available if you study. Um, and there are some fantastic books uh, available. But it's again the same issue we came back in Nasiha about getting the knowledge. 
I mean, the Shia as a group are of many, many different types. Many different, and I know most people are, most of them are 12er, you know, uh, 12er Shia, but they're of many, many different types. Even within the 12ers, there are many very, very varied beliefs. And so nailing down what kind of beliefs uh, does the person openly curse the Sahaba, or do they, for example, claim to love them while cursing them in, in private? Do they, uh, for example, uh, hold some of the companions to be okay, if so, which one? And, you know, by this you can develop a strategy by which you can help them to come to the truth. And that's the most important thing. It's more important than the issue of really right now of their Islam or non-Islam is that you need to get them away from it. Because if they haven't gone out of Islam, then they're on the edge of going out of Islam. And many of them have, you know, at the end of the day. But if, they, if that individual hasn't, then at least they're on the edge of it. And so it's going to be really important to help them to come back uh, and to spend a lot of effort in da'wah and a lot of effort in, in explaining to them. Because you have to understand that there's a big propaganda campaign goes out. You know that the people of the Sunnah hate Ahlul Bayt and they hate Ali and they hate, you know, Fatima and that, you know, Fatima was uh, abused by, you know, she was, her rights were withheld by Abu Bakr and the companions betrayed Ali and all of this stuff that is said and all of it is a lie and none of it has any proof, not in the books of them or the books of us except for the fabricated ahadith. But subhanAllah, this is the, the sort of things that are said. So people have to have these misconceptions cleared and so that they really understand that actually, no, that's not true. And uh, the situation is not as they thought it was. And I think that's what the person needs to give the most attention to. Uh, my question is uh, regarding the four traits of uh, the munafiq. Um, you know, most people have uh, characteristics of, you know, most of us lie and some of us are short-tempered. Some of, uh, some of us don't keep our promises. I want to know what is the extent when one can consider that he has a trait of a munafiq and should be worried about um, how severe this trait has to be? I think the fact that the trait is there is uh, severe enough. Like and you know, subhanAllah, one of, the, one, of the, the strain, one of the sad things, and I noticed this, is that I agree with the sister that many of us lie and we lie without even realizing it. And the other week I made this decision that I'm going to really look at what I say and I'm going to really bite my tongue if I'm about to say something that isn't true. And it shocked me how often we say things that aren't true. And, you know, I'm not talking about coming and lying or oh, I was here and instead you were there. I'm talking about saying something that, that, that generally wasn't true or saying something that maybe was slightly exaggerated or something that didn't quite happen like that. And subhanAllah, we do it all the time. And this is a big, you know, cause of fear. And I, I don't think anyone should, should feel confident and say, oh, well, I only have a small amount. No, at the end of the day, you know, if a person betrays the trusts they are given and they lie when they speak and they turn away from the truth when they argue uh, and they, uh, you know, when they make a, a covenant or a promise, they break it then this is a person who has the characteristics of the munafiq whose nifaq is in his action and not in his belief. And that's something we should all fear. And I think that's very appropriate for the next chapter. The believers fear that his good deeds will not be accepted. We're not doing it yet, don't worry. But the, the believers fear that his good deeds may be lost. All of us fear that, you know, subhanAllah, and it's something well worth doing, you know, that when you speak, really think about it and you really value your silence. And, you know, there's a famous uh, athar from Umar going around that 
as for my, uh, you know, my silence, I've never regretted it. And as for my speech, I've regretted it many times. I looked for it. I couldn't find a source for it from the statement of Umar. But it's very true. You know, subhanAllah, you never ever regret your silence. But as for your speech, you regret it many, many times. And you sit there and think, how many times do we tell a story? Oh, and the brother came from here. And before you know, you're saying things that really aren't, you know, in the essence of it, aren't true. But it's just, you know, you get carried away saying something and it, and it happens. Um, and then there are people, the problem is that lying breeds lying. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned this, that a person will continue lying until Allah writes him as a kathab, as a severe liar, because lying breeds lying. And, you know, some of us, I mean, we wouldn't dream of lying about something in the, you know, open sense of the word, like, where were you last night, uh, or I was here. You wouldn't dream of lying. But, subhanAllah, many of us might lie through the way that we relate things and the way that we tell things and the way that we say things. Uh, we could easily fall into lying. And so, this is something, there is no minimum amount that you say, okay, you only lie a bit, you only betray a bit, you only, you know, break your covenant a bit. If those characteristics are there, then the person has the characteristics of a munafiq in their actions. And that means that they need to correct those. It doesn't take them outside of Islam, but it does mean they need to really look and correct those actions and really make an effort. Now, I think one of the, the beautiful ways to do this is, first of all, with regard to speech, try not to speak. You know, really try to reduce the amount that you speak. Because a lot of what we say doesn't get you any good deeds and it only gets you bad. So take to silence. فَلْيَقُلْ خَيْرًا أَوْ Let the believer say good or remain silent. So get in the habit of being silent. With regard to covenants, Try not to get in the habit of making them. You know, I have a problem, and my problem is I'm a soft person. Maybe I don't seem like a soft person, I don't know. But I'm, a, I'm, I'm soft when it comes to people twisting my arm. And people get me to go, you know, come on, you know, brother, just you know, agree to this, you know, just do like five things for us, or just write three articles for us. Yeah, go on, I'll do it. And then, subhanAllah, you end up breaking it, and you know, now I'm very strict. Now I don't take on promises or contracts ever, unless I'm really, really sure that I'm going to be able, and even with emails, many of you will see, I say, send me an email, I'll do my best to reply. I intend to reply to all of you, but just in case, I don't want to make that promise that I get in the habit of, yeah, yeah, you know, send me an email, and, and by a lot, by tomorrow you'll have a reply. Because how many times are we going to make that and break it? So they say, inshallah, you know, bi-idhnillah, send me an email, I'll do my best to reply. And, you know, likewise, when it comes to being entrusted with things, don't take on trusts. Don't let people say, oh brother, you know what it is? Can you just look after a thousand dirham for me? Zakala khair. Inshallah, you can put it in the bank. You know, like, try, and I'm not saying be horrible to people, but just think about something before you take it on. And likewise, you know, when it comes to um, uh, the issue of, of, of speech, of promises, of, of trusts, of covenants, you know, try to get in the habit of thinking about them before you make them. Because from my side, I found the most I was falling into this was innocently accepting things too much and being, yes, 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 I'll do it, yeah, sure, no problem. And then people would come and say, you know, Muhammad Tim, every time he makes me a promise, he breaks it. And I thought about it, I thought, subhanAllah, you know what it is? That's probably true because I get, the person literally twisted my arm, you know, really, really, you know, gave me a hard time over it. Please, just one khutbah a year, one khutbah a year, one khutbah a year. Until I said yes, and then subhanAllah, when I didn't do that khutbah a year, Muhammad Tim doesn't keep his promises. And subhanAllah, it's, it, it is, it's my fault. You know, you should turn, learn to, to, to turn around to people, and quite simply, one brother gave me some advice. He said, brother, learn to say no. 
learn to say people, no, I'm not going to do it for you. Nope, I can't help you. No, I'm not going to do it. And that way, you'll avoid many times making promises that you don't keep um, and making covenants that you break. And, and again, if you're going into business and some of the brothers were talking about business contracts, make sure your business contract has an exit clause. Because for so many people, you don't put yourself... Shari'i, I mean, okay, you can say in the, in the law, I have an exit clause, but in the Sharia, you might not. And then you get yourself completely stuck. Put yourself an exit clause. After two months, both parties have the right to review, and any of them, or after every six months or every three months, any of them can leave who wants to leave. Put yourself an exit clause in your contract. Because otherwise you end up with, yeah, I've signed a 10-year agreement to work with this brother in business, and when we, you know, we've agreed never ever to do any other work apart from this for 10 years. By 8 years' time, you're killing yourself. Like, what have I done? You know, so make yourself like regular review periods and things like that, because you have to stick to what you, what you agree to. Uh, and otherwise, you know, the problem is people get into things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a long-term contract. Get a long-term contract, but have some review periods in it where, you know, every year or whatever, people can review it, and those who want to, you know, if they want to leave and break, they can do so without any hard feelings between the people. And manage people's expectations. Because a lot of times, we don't manage people's expectations, and we end up harming them and harming ourselves, because we give people an expectation that is unrealistic. Um, You know, telling people, yeah, you know, I will definitely answer your uh, email tomorrow, or whatever it is. It's an unrealistic expectation and something we can't do. And it's difficult, and I still find myself sometimes I fall into it, but it's something that you, the more you are conscious of what you say and what you do and what you agree to, the less likely it is you're going to fall into this situation. And lying is something that you just have to literally bite your tongue and learn not to do it. Like backbiting. Learn to bite your tongue and not to do it. Learn to really stop. And one of the best ways, Wallahu alam, I find personally, is to openly correct myself in front of everybody because that soon stops you doing it, you know. Actually, I didn't tell the truth. It was like this. And that, okay, that stops you doing it. Once you've done that three, four times, it's like backbiting. One solution for backbiting, simply go to the person and ask forgiveness. I promise you, you do that two, three times, you're never going to backbite ta'ala. Because you're so embarrassed about going to somebody and saying, I said something about you and, you know, I'm really sorry and please forgive me, that inshallah that will soon wipe out the habit of backbiting very, very quickly. Because you got in the habit of going to people and saying, oh, I'm really sorry. And then, you know, you had to come with, you know, you had to come with all your humility and you had to really, you know, grovel and ask them to forgive you. And then after a while you learn, you know, pretty much not to do it. Even though you can fall into it accidentally from time to time. uh, But... You know, as much as you can, you try not to do it, inshallah. We'll take a, a couple more questions, or one more question. Let's see how much time we have. Go ahead, brother. Assalamu alaikum. Here. I just want to ask regarding Khilafah. Because uh, in the days when uh, Prophet was there, Khilafah was so important, and we had read a lot of hadith about the Khilafah. And this world, currently, we are living without any Khilafah. So, is it a sin to live without Khilafah? Or is there any hadith or any, uh, do we see in near future the returning back of our Khilafat? Because sometimes we feel like we are all like individual Muslims. We don't have any real uh, uh, group. We are not really uh, united. We, there is a, so many uh, differences, nationalities. We come from different nationality, different groups, different ethics. There is really no Islamic uh, uh, unity as such. So, okay. do you have any hadith for returning back of Khilafat? 
Okay, the, this is a, a long issue and an issue really we need a separate, a separate uh, muhadara for, a separate lesson for. However, I want to point out a few simple points. First of all, many Muslims are under a misconception that Muslims have been united all the way until, you know, like 200 years ago. This is just historically and factually completely incorrect. Muslims have been disunited since the end of the Umayyad Khilafah. And there hasn't been a single united Muslim government since the time of the Umayyad Khilafah. And so this is a complete misconception people have of, yeah, you know, we were really united and we were, we were all one and then suddenly, you know, this happened recently. No, that's not true. Secondly, we can't uh, do anything to change the situation that Allah has put us in in terms of the, the situation of the Muslim Ummah today, except to reform it through teaching people, through benefiting people, through correcting ourselves and others. And Allah will take care of the rest. As for the people who have a very strange idea, we have a lot of them in, in the UK, who they think that if you change something at the top, it will change what is at the bottom. And this is so in opposition to the Sunnah of the Prophet Because the Sunnah of the Prophet is that if you change what is at the bottom, it will filter through to the whole of society. And that is why in Makkah, for 13 years, the Prophet ﷺ didn't seek any kind of governance. And he didn't want any. Because the people were not ready for it. And in reality, you've seen what happens when these things are forced. Look at the situation of the you know, so-called Arab, whatever it was, spring. or you know, you know, It should be called the Arab winter. Yeah, and it didn't bring any spring and it didn't bring anything good. As Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said. All it did is to cause the Muslim blood to be spilled. And nothing more than that. And so in reality, what corrects the Muslim Ummah? What corrects the Muslim Ummah is you correct yourself. And you correct your other people around you. And then you'll see the society becomes a reflection of you. Because the society is nothing more than a reflection of how we are as Muslims. This society is not made up of aliens and us. It's made up of, of us. All these people around us are us. They are just a mirror to you. You know, and our lack of practicing Islam is the reason why they are not practicing Islam. And our lack of closeness to Allah is the reason why they are not close to Allah. And so when we correct ourselves and correct other people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring about a situation that will correct the affairs of this ummah. As for the concept that people have, and you know, you see the most ajib things. I, don't, I mean, alhamdulillah, I'm sure you don't get them really bad here, but in the UK we see the most ajib things. You know, you see people who don't practice Islam. They don't pray. They don't have any... Of the, of the sharia in them, wallah, if you tested them for the sharia and you had a blood test, it would come back negative. You know, and then these people come out and they say that we need to you know, gather all of the Muslims together behind one. No, at the end of the day, this is not a priority. This is not the problem with the ummah. And the fact that the Muslims have separate states and separate uh, governments is not the problem with the ummah. And it's never been the problem with the Ummah, not in the time of the Abbasid and the time of Imam Muslim and all of the rest. You know, this was the situation uh, that the Muslims were in. In the same situation. And it's never been the problem with the Ummah. The problem with the Ummah is the problem that was with the Ummah at the time of the Sahaba before in the time of Jahiliyyah. And that's why Imam Malik said nothing will correct this latter part of this Ummah except what corrected the former part of the Ummah. Now that doesn't mean we don't feel for the situation of our Muslim brothers and sisters around the world. Of course we do. Of course we do. But we need to get out of this image that, yeah, you know what it is? If the Muslims were all united in one place, that would fix the problem. 
You're just being the, you, all you're just doing is just basically rearranging something in, in a different pattern, but it's the same corrupt people, it's the same sin, it's the same disobedience to Allah, it's the same bid'ah, it's the same everything. It's just basically being moved around. Okay, now you don't call it one thing, you call it another thing. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing, it's the same corruption. And so you can't fix it like that. The only way you can fix it is to fix it individually. And wallahi, honestly, if you people in a tiny area of Dubai, a tiny area of Dubai, and the people corrected themselves and their neighbors and helped each other, and then they corrected themselves and helped each other, before you see, you will see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring about good for the people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take care of whatever it is that needs to be taken care of for the ummah and will protect the ummah and protect the Muslims. But we have to change ourselves. Allah Azza wa doesn't change the condition of the people until they change what is in their own selves. So it's about reforming ourselves and not reforming our, uh, you know, our legal systems or our governments. And it's about reforming our families and not reforming the wider society. These things come when the people reform themselves. And when you, the people don't, you see what has happened. And you only have to look at this uh, Arab winter, to see what happens when the people are not ready for a change and they have a, a change forced upon them, there is no Islam. In the end of the day, all it does is increase the facade and increase the, 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 the corruption in the earth and Allah. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to correct the situation of the ummah. And you make dua for the people, no doubt. You make dua for the people. You make dua for the, the people who are in authority over the Muslims in Dubai and in the Emirates and in all over the Muslim world that Allah Azza wa Jal helps them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supports them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them sincere advisors who advise them to the truth. This is the sunnah. And with this you will see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will correct the people and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected the people. And you saw this at the time of Umar bin Abdul Aziz and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected the people. When the people corrected themselves and so subhanAllah this is the the sunnah and, and this is an illusion we have to get ourselves out of of blaming other things and other things you know get blamed it's not the only thing lots of things get fingers pointed at here and there that this is the reason this is the reason because people are not willing to look in the mirror and say I am the reason it's not him and it's not him and it's not him it's me it's my lack of coming to Salatul Fajr it's my lack of Islamic etiquette it's my lack of Islamic knowledge that is the reason the ummah is in a state and as the, the, the day that this ummah stops pointing its finger at other people and starts pointing it at itself, this is when Allah Azza wa Jal will bring about and rectify the problem that the people are facing, bi-idnillahi ta'ala. And we're going to get started with the, uh, the rest of the explanation. Chapter 52, the believers fear that his good deeds may be lost. It is narrated on the authority of Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu anhu. That when the verse was revealed, O you who believe, do not raise your voices above the voice of the Prophet, nor shout loud to him in discourse as you shout loud to one another, lest your deed should become null and void while you perceive it not was revealed. Thabit ibn Qais confined himself to his house and said, I am one of the people of the fire. And he deliberately avoided coming to the Messenger wasallam. The Prophet wasallam asked Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh about him and he said, O Abu Amr, how is Thabit radiallahu anhu? Has he fallen sick? Sa'ad said, he is my neighbor, but I do not know of his illness. Then Sa'ad came to him and gave him the message of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa And upon this Thabit said, this verse was revealed 
And you are well aware of the fact that among all of you, mine is the loud, louder voice than the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So I am one of the people of the hellfire. Sa'ad informed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, no but Thabit is one of the people of Jannah. And the hadith has been narrated on the authority of Anas ibn Malik from another chain of transmitters in which the words are found that Thabit ibn Qais was the orator of the Ansar. And when this verse was revealed, uh, the rest of the hadith is the same, except there is no mention of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh in it. And the hadith is narrated by Ahmed ibn Sa'id, Habban Suleyman ibn Mughira on the authority of Anas who said, when the, when, the voice, when the verse was revealed, do not raise your voice louder than the voice of the messenger. No mention was made of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh in it. And this hadith is narrated on the authority of Anas with another chain of transmitters in which there is no mention of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, but the words are there that we observed a man, one of the dwellers of paradise, walking among us. Again, the second two are matters of hadith about whether it was Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh who spoke to Thabit ibn Qais or not. But the purpose of this is that Thabit ibn Qais was a great speaker. And because he was a great speaker, his voice was naturally loud. And many times when he would speak, he would drown out the sound of the Prophet ﷺ, even accidentally, even if he just raised his voice because he had a very loud and powerful voice. And so when Allah revealed the ayah, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu la tarfa'u aswatakum fawqa sawtin nabi, do not raise your voices above the voice of the Prophet ﷺ, Thabit ibn Qais believed that his deeds had been destroyed. And this is all about the fear of the believer. Thabit ibn Qais was from the people of Jannah and the Prophet ﷺ promised him Jannah in this hadith. And that shows you that there were people promised Jannah other than the ten who were promised Jannah. Thabit was promised Jannah in this hadith and yet he feared that his deeds would be lost. As for the meaning of the ayah, the meaning of the ayah is two things. First of all, not to raise your voice over the Prophet ﷺ nor to address the Prophet ﷺ as you address anybody else. And that is according to the um, sort of the most apparent and obvious meaning of the ayah. But the ayah also means not to oppose the Prophet ﷺ after his death and not to effectively raise your voice over his by ignoring what he says and by giving your opinion over what he said sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this just shows you the reality of the companions, that they feared that their deeds would be lost. And I think one of the most beautiful things narrated in this regard is that Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an, and you know who Umar is. Umar ibn al-Khattab came to Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman radiallahu anhuma and he said to Hudayfa, did the messenger of Allah consider me to be a munafiq? This is Umar ibn al-Khattab who says to Hudayfa, did the messenger of Allah say that I was a munafiq? Hudayfa said, I will tell you and I will tell nobody else but you that he did not say, you know, that you're not a munafiq. And I will tell this to you and nobody else. So let, don't let the whole sahaba start queuing up, am I a munafiq? Because Hudayfa was the secret keeper of the Prophet and yet look at how Umar used to be. That Umar didn't think he had any good deeds in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal. Or he feared that his good deeds would all be lost. And yet he was the greatest of the companions in Iman after Abu Bakr radiallahu an. And Abu Bakr was the greatest of all of the companions of the Prophet in Iman. So this shows that the state of the believer is not that you become firm in your, in your confidence but that you remain between fear and hope. Nor do you despair. You don't hear Umar despairing. You don't hear Umar despairing. Or you don't hear Thabit despairing. 
It wasn't a state of despair, but it was a state of fear. The believer remains between fear and hope. When your fear gets too much, you concentrate on your hope, and when your hope gets too much, you concentrate on your fear. Chapter 53, will a person be punished for his actions during Jahiliyyah? It is narrated on the authority of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud that some people said to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, O Messenger of Allah, will we be held responsible for our deeds committed in the state of ignorance before embracing Islam? Upon this, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam remarked, He who among you performed good deeds in Islam, he, he will not be held responsible for the bad deeds he committed in ignorance. And he who committed evil after embracing Islam will be held responsible for his misdeeds that he committed in the state of ignorance as well as those committed in Islam. The meaning of good and evil here is in the light of Islam itself. If the person embraced Islam, then everything good that they did will continue and every evil that they did will be wiped out. And if the person after Islam, doesn't mean after they accepted Islam, but after the coming of Islam, continues to do evil, they will be held for the evil they did before Islam and the evil that they did after Islam. And the meaning of this evil is not that if they do a sin, they'll be held for all their sins. It doesn't mean that. It means that if they refuse Islam or turn back on Islam or leave Islam or they don't embrace Islam, they'll be held for all the evil they did. But as long as they embrace Islam and remain firm in Islam, they will never be held for the evil they did, even if they sin. And that's quite important to note, because you might read it and you think that the one who committed evil would refer to the person who sins. I, every time you sin, you are held for all the sins you did in Jahiliyyah. And this is not true. The Prophet ﷺ said, do you not know that Islam erases what came before it? And this is why we have chapter number 54 that Islam destroys that which came before it, as does the Hijrah and the Hajj. It's narrated on the authority of Ibn Shamasa and Mahri that he said, we went to Amr ibn al-As and he was about to die. He wept for a long time and turned his face towards the wall. That's the fear of your deeds being lost. His son said, did the Messenger of Allah وسلم, not give you the glad tidings of this? Did the Messenger of Allah وسلم, not give you glad tidings of this? The narrator said, he turned the face towards the audience and said, the best thing which we can count upon is the testimony that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad وسلم, is the Messenger of Allah. Indeed, I passed through three phases. The first one in which I found myself averse to none else more than I was averse to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and there was no desire stronger in me than the one that I should overpower him and kill him. Had I died in this state, I would have definitely been from the people of the fire. So this is the first state that Amr ibn al-As was in. He says, I've been through three phases in my life. One, when I was an enemy of the Messenger of Allah and I wanted to kill him. And if I had died in this state, I would have been from the people of the hellfire. And when Allah, the second state, when Allah instilled the love of Islam in my heart, I came to the Messenger وسلم, and said, stretch out your right hand so that I may pledge my allegiance to you. And he stretched out his right hand and I withdrew my hand. And the Prophet وسلم, said, what happened to your Amr? He replied, I intended to lay down some condition. 
He asked, what condition do you intend to put forward? I said that I should be forgiven. So Amr wanted, before he made the agreement, he wanted to make a deal with the Prophet ﷺ that I'll accept Islam if I can be forgiven for everything that came before. The Prophet ﷺ said, do you not know that Islam wipes out all of the previous sins? And, and Hijrah wipes out all of the previous sins and the Hajj wipes out all of the previous sins. And Amr said, and then no one as dear to me, there was no one as dear to me as the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And none was more sublime in my eyes than he. Never could I pluck the courage to glance, catch a full glimpse of his face due to its splendor. So if I'm asked to describe his features, I cannot do that because I could not even look at him fully. Had I died in this state, I had every reason to hope that I would be among the dwellers of paradise. This is the second state of Amr. And this is the purpose of the hadith. It's for the hadith he narrated from the Prophet ﷺ. Then we were responsible for certain things. And I do not know what is in store for me. When I die, let neither female mourner nor fire accompany me. I don't let any women come to my grave uh, or any fire. When you bury me, fill my grave well with earth and stand around it for a time in which the camel is slaughtered and its meat is distributed so that I may enjoy your intimacy and your company ascertain what answer I can give to the messengers of Allah. This hadith links to the hadith that is before, in the sense that Amr ibn al-As radiallahu uh, anhu, Amr here has gone through three phases in his life. A phase when he was an enemy of the messenger of Allah. And a phase when he was on the high of Iman with the Prophet and he had every reason to believe he would be from the people of paradise. And a third phase after the death of the Prophet when many, many things happened and he does not know how he will be judged. I.e., I don't know whether I'm going this way or that way. I don't know whether Allah will accept what I did or whether Allah will not accept it. So that's the fear of the good deeds. And that is to do with the fact of the trials and tribulations that happen between the companions. And there's no doubt that Amr, radiallahu an, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, made uh, tawbah for whatever happened between the companions. And indeed, uh, you know, he did his best in order to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as all of the companions did. But you see his fear of his deeds not being accepted, which is a sign of a believer. As for the purpose of the hadith, the purpose of the hadith is to prove that Islam wipes out the sins that come before it and to explain the previous hadith that the meaning of doing, doing evil means to leave Islam or it means to not accept Islam and it doesn't mean to commit a sin. As for the hijrah and the hajj, they wipe out the sins but they don't wipe out the major sins without tawbah. I.e. in order to wipe out the major sins for the hijrah and the hajj it is required to make tawbah for those sins as well as performing the hijrah or to make tawbah for those sins as well as performing the hajj. As for performing the hajj, while having riba and not be making tawbah for riba and coming back to riba, then this is not a repentance that is uh, accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is not wiped out. Rather, what is wiped out are all of the minor sins and the major sins that a person does not on the major sins that a person makes tawbah for, and this is clear in the other, in many of the other hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, as for any deed that the Prophet said, it wipes out your sins. 
for it to wipe out the major sins requires tawbah as in your hajj will wipe out your major sins guaranteed as long as you repent for them while you are making your, your hajj and you, you intend not to do them again as for repentance repentance means three uh, or we can say four things past present and future as for in the past it means to feel sorry for what you've done in the present it means to stop doing what you're doing so if you want to write it down in one word the past is to stop sorry the past is to regret and the present is to stop the past is to regret and the present is to stop and the future is to intend i.e. to intend never to do it again so in the past you feel sorry you regret in the present you stop doing it in the future you intend never to do it again. And then if you've harmed anybody, you seek their forgiveness and you return back anything that you have to return back to them. Chapter 55, clarifying the, clarifying the ruling of an action by a disbeliever and if he accepts Islam after it. Hakim ibn Hizam reported that Urwa, to Urwa ibn Zubayr that he said to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, do you think there is anything for me for the deed of religious purification that I did in the state of ignorance. Upon this, the Prophet ﷺ said, you accepted Islam with all the previous virtues that you practiced. I, this is an even further clarification that not only does Islam wipe out the sins, but all of the good deeds are kept. All of the good deeds are kept. Uh, Urwa here is not a Sahabi, but it is Hakim who is the one who is reporting to Urwa what he said. That is clear. Chapter 56 Sincerity of Iman and Ikhlas Or True Iman and Ikhlas If you want to call it True Iman or Sincerity of Iman Sidqul Iman yani The Truth of Iman there. The True Iman and Ikhlas It is narrated on the authority of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu That when this verse was revealed It is those who believe and do not mix their belief with wrongdoing the companions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam were greatly worried. They said, who among us is so fortunate that he does not sin? Okay, what is the problem here? The ayah, In Surah Al-An'am. In Surah Al-An'am, uh, I'm guessing the ayah is 82 because that's the ayah written here, but it's in Surah Al-An'am. Yes, 682. In Surah Al-An'am, Allah says, those who believe and do not mix their belief with zulm. Now what do you think the companions understood from this? They understand that those who believe and do not mix their belief with sin. That's what they understood. They are the ones who have safety and they are the ones who will be guided. So they understood that the one who doesn't sin is going to be safe and the one who doesn't sin is going to be guided. So of course because of the fear of their deeds and you know, their knowledge of the sins that people do, they felt scared that none of them would ever be guided and none of them would ever be safe. Upon this the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, it does not mean what you think. It implies what Luqman said to his son, O oh my son, do not make a partner with Allah. Indeed, it is the greatest wrongdoing. 
Inna shirka la zulmun azim. Shirk is the greatest zulm. So this here shows you that the tafsir of the ayah is not that the one that doesn't sin will be safe, but that the one that does not commit shirk will be safe and the one that does not commit shirk will be guided. And that tells you that tawheed is the thing that protects you, it is the source of guidance and it is a source of safety in this world and the next, and that is your iman and that is your sincerity towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, i.e. Uh, the ikhlas here is i.e. your sincerity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that you don't make any partner with him. As for dhulm, there are three types of dhulm, three types of oppression. Three types of oppression. The first is the oppression that will not be forgiven. So if you're just making notes, just write, not be forgiven. So the first type is the type that will not be forgiven. The second type is the type that will not be overlooked. So the first type is the type that will not be forgiven. The second is the one that will not be overlooked. And the third is the one that will be forgiven and overlooked. So the first one will not be forgiven. The second one will not be overlooked. I, Allah will not overlook it and let it go. And the third one will be forgiven and overlooked. What is the first one that will not be forgiven? Shirk. What is the one that will not be overlooked? We mentioned it today. Oppression of others. So this is oppression of others. Because the oppression you do to other people, it's not, Allah is not going to just overlook it. Because now, what you've done, you've done it to another human being. And so Allah, if He wills, He will inspire that other human being to forgive you. Or, and if He wills, He will make them take your good deeds or, give them your, or you take their bad deeds. And the third will be forgiven and overlooked, which is? Your own sins. Your own sins. Your own sins that don't involve shirk and don't involve oppression of other people. Allah Azza wa Jal Ta'ala will forgive them and will overlook them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ghafoorun rahim. Is forgiving and, more, and the most forgiving and the most merciful. Allah Azza wa will forgive the sins that you do to yourself ta'ala. But the ones that you do which are shirk will not be forgiven unless you repent in this life. And the one that will not be overlooked are the ones that you do to other people unless you ask their forgiveness in this life. Or Allah Azza wa inspires them to forgive you. And then the third will be forgiven and will be overlooked. Chapter 57. Clarification that Allah the Most High allows a person's thoughts and whatever occurs in his heart as long as they do not become established and that the clarification that he, glorious is he and Most High does not burden anyone with more than they can bear and clarifying the ruling on thinking of doing good deeds and bad deeds. So reported on the authority of Abu Hurairah that when it was revealed to the Messenger of Allah to Allah belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is in the earth. And whether you disclose that which is in your mind or conceal it, Allah will call you to account for it. 
then he forgives whoever he pleases and he punishes whoever he pleases and Allah is over everything uh, and Allah is able to do everything. This ayah, what does it indicate? When you read this ayah, I know it's an ancient translation of the Quran, but when you read this ayah, what do you understand from the ayah? You understand that whatever you think of, you're going to be taken to account for. Allah revealed everything you think of, you're going to be punished. Allah is going to punish you for whoever He wills, for even the things that you think of. The companions of the Messenger of Allah felt it hard and severe. And they came to the Messenger of Allah and sat down on their knees and said, O Messenger of Allah, we were assigned some duties which were in our power to perform such as prayer and fasting and struggling in the cause of Allah, i.e. fighting in the cause of Allah, and charity. Then this verse was revealed and it is beyond our power to live up to it. Meaning we can pray and we can fight and we can, we can fast. But you're asking us now that everything in our mind we're going to be taken to account for. The Prophet ﷺ said, Do you intend to say what the people of the two books said before you? We hear and we disobey. Rather, you should say we hear and we obey and we seek forgiveness for our Lord and to Him, unto you, is the return. So what did the Prophet ﷺ tell them to say? This is the ayah, لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَإِن تُبْدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبُكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ فَيَغْفِرُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيُعَذِّبُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ And what did the Prophet Sallallahu tell them to say? غُفْرَانَكْ رَبَّنَا وَإِلِكَ نَصِيرٌ Our Lord forgive us and to you is the return. When the people recited it and it, and it flowed smoothly on their tongues Allah Azza wa Jal revealed آمَنَ الرَّسُولُ بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ this ayah was revealed to abrogate the previous ayah. I.e. the previous ayah was abrogated by these two ayat. But look at the test the companions went through. Look at the test they went through. They went through a test believing that everything they thought was going to be taken to account for them. And then the Prophet ﷺ taught them to say, and they kept on saying it and saying it and saying it and then Allah Azza wa Jal revealed آمَنَ الرَّسُولُ بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ كُلٌّ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسُلِهِ لَا نُفَرِّقُ بَيْنَ أَحَدٍ مِنْ رُسُلِهِ وَقَالُوا سَمِعْنَا وَأَطَعْنَا هُفْرَانَكَ رَبَّنَا وَإِلَيْكَ الْمَصِيرِ لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وُسْعَهَا لَهَا مَا كَسَبَتْ وَعَلَيْهَا مَا اكْتَسَبَتْ رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَاخِذْنَا إِن نَّسِينَا أَوْ أَخْطَأْنَا رَبَّنَا وَلَا تَحْمِلْ عَلَيْنَا إِسْرًا كَمَا حَمَلْتَهُ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِنَا رَبَّنَا وَلَا تُحَمِّلْنَا مَا لَا طَاقَةَ لَنَا بِهِ وَاعْفُ عَنَّا وَاغْفِرْ لَنَا وَارْحَمْنَا أَنْتَ مَوْلَانَا فَانْصُرْنَا عَلَى الْقَوْمِ الْكَافِرِينَ And Allah Azza wa Jal said yes. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abrogated the verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abrogated the first verse. That it remains to read to remind us of the test. But the ruling of the verse is gone. And that Allah said, Allah burdens a person, not, does not burden a person beyond what, what they can bear. They get the good that it earns and they suffer the evil that it earns. Oh our Lord, do not punish us if we forget or make a mistake. The Prophet ﷺ said, yes, our Lord, do not lay on us a burden as you laid on those before us. 
our Lord, do not impose on us burdens which we have not the strength to bear and pardon us and grant us protection and have mercy on us. You are our protector, so grant us victory over the disbelieving people. And Allah Azza wa Jal said yes. Yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replied that I have accepted your dua and I have abrogated the, the ruling of the previous verse. And this shows you some of the benefits of abrogating the verses. That Allah abrogated it but kept it there for us to read. Why? To remember the test that they went through. And remember the time when they thought that they would be taken to account for every single thing. And then Allah revealed a mercy that He will not take us to a burden that we can't bear and He will only give us the good of what we've earned and the evil of what we have earned in our actions and that He will not take us to account for what we think uh, and that Allah will forgive us and pardon us and give us protection and He is our protector and He will give us victory over the disbelieving people and He said, yes, I, Allah accepted the dua. Going back to the title of Imam al-Nawawi, we understand that Allah allows a person's thoughts and whatever occurs in their heart as long as they do not become established in their actions. That is because in the beginning, Allah said that He was going to take you to account for all of your thoughts. And then Allah abrogated the ayah. So therefore there is no ruling to the ayah. And with regard to abrogation, as the scholars of Islam say, uh, abrogation can happen uh, through the Qur'an or the Sunnah. The Sunnah can be abrogated by the Qur'an and the Qur'an can be abrogated by the Sunnah and the Sunnah can be abrogated by the Sunnah and the Qur'an can be abrogated by the Qur'an according to the correct opinion. Some of the scholars of Usul, they had some disagreement in some of those but the correct opinion is everything in the Qur'an, anything in the Qur'an could potentially abrogate anything in the Sunnah and anything in the Sunnah could potentially abrogate anything in the Qur'an and likewise between the two, the Sunnah to the Sunnah and the Qur'an to the Qur'an. However, for abrogation to be known, you have to know that one of them came after the other and you have to know that it was abrogated. As in, you can't just say, okay, this is abrogated now. You have to know that one came after because remember, the Qur'an was not revealed in the same order that we recited today. Different ayat were revealed at different uh, times. So the last ayat to be revealed in the Qur'an was And this ayat is in the end of Surah Al-Baqarah but not at the very end. And he's sort of in the second or third last page of uh, Surah Al-Baqarah. So that is, you know, nowhere near the end of the Qur'an, even though it was the last ayah to be revealed. And some said the last ayah was, الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينَكُمْ But the last ayah was, فَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا تُرْجَعُونَ فِيهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ In any case, in terms of abrogation in the Qur'an, there are abrogation where the ayah is gone and the ruling is gone. The ayah is gone and the ruling is gone. So the ayah is gone and the ruling is gone. There are abrogations where the ayah is gone and the ruling remains. And there is abrogation where the ayah remains and the ruling is gone. So three types of abrogation in the Qur'an. The ayah is gone and the ruling is gone. The ayah is gone and the ruling remains. The ayah remains and the ruling goes. So this one is an example of number three that we've done in the hadith. 
the ayah remains, we still read لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَإِن تُبْدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبَكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ We still read this, but the ruling is gone. There are some that are the opposite, the ruling remains. For example, وَالشَّيْخُ وَالشَّيْخَةُ إِذَا زَنَيَا فَرْجُمُوهُمَا نَكَالًا مِنَ اللَّهِ Or as the ayah goes, uh, this is an ayah that is no longer in the Qur'an, but the ruling remains. The married man and the married woman, if they commit zina, then stone them as a punishment from Allah. The ayah was read at the time of the Prophet ﷺ and then the ayah was removed and the ruling remains. So the ruling is no different, the ruling remains but the ayah has been removed. And then there are some that the ayah is gone and the ruling is gone and I'm trying to think of an example but I can't think of one off the top of my head uh, when the ayah uh, is taken and gone and the ruling is gone. Of course these ayahs don't disappear after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. That in the ruling, in the time of Uthman, the ayah disappeared out of the Mus'haf. It doesn't work like that. During the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ specifically said, Allah has removed this, and in the final Qur'an that the Prophet ﷺ revised with Jibreel in Ramadan, all of the abrogations that were taken out were taken out. And Allah says, مَا نَنْسَخْ مِنْ آيَةٍ أَوْ نُنْسِهَا نَأْتِ بِخَيْرٍ مِنْهَا أَوْ مِثْلِهَا Whatever ayah we cause to be forgotten, or we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, we bring better than it or equal to it. And Allah is able to do all things. Allah chooses to do this and it's his right to choose. That during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, some ayat were there that are not there when he died and he personally told the Muslims to remove them, that Allah has commanded me and Allah has revealed to me that this ayah is to be removed. And there were some ayat which the ruling has been removed and the ayah remains. And there are many ayat like that. There are many ayat like that. Like the ayah in Surah An-Nisa regarding the, um, the women, uh, the one regarding the women who Allah Azza wa Jal, uh, until Allah makes them away. Uh, um, that they remain in the house. From, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, Come here, come here. Allah has made them a way out. Allah has made them a way out. And then the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the ruling regarding zina and so on and so forth. And this made them a way out from the ayah that said, If they, if they, if they cheat on you, uh, then keep them in the house, imprison them in the house until they die. Or until Allah makes for them a way out And then Allah, the Prophet said Listen to me, listen to me Allah has made them a way out And then he mentioned that there is uh, The means and the punishment for adultery And that Allah had made a way out Of the ayah that was revealed And so these ayat It is part of the beauty of the Quran And the wisdom of the Quran That abrogation takes place And abrogation can take place And the ayah can be gone And the ruling can remain Or the ruling can be gone And the ayah can remain or both the ayah and the ruling can go, but I can't think of an example uh, off of the top of my head, but I do remember there are some. And that Allah does not burden anyone with more than they can bear, and clarifying the ruling on thinking of doing good deeds and bad deeds. Chapter 58 is just a recap on something we've already done. Allah allows a person's thoughts and whatever occurs in his heart, so long as they do not become established. On the authority of Abu Hurairah, the Messenger of Allah said, Indeed, Allah forgave my ummah. The evil promptings which arise within their heart as long as they do not speak about them or act upon them. And this is a clarification or a further evidence for what we mentioned in the previous hadith. As for chapter 59, 
This is what we're trying to uh, clarify right now. If a person thinks of doing a good deed, it will be recorded for him. And if he thinks of doing a bad deed, it will not be recorded for him. It was narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, The great and glorious Lord said to the angels, Whenever my slave intends to commit evil, do not record it against him. But if he actually commits it, then write it as one evil. And when he intends to do good but does not do it, then take it down as one act of good. But if he does it, then write down ten good deeds in his record. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, and this is in the, in the, uh, here we have a hadith Qudusi, whenever my slave intends to do good but does not do it, I write one good act for him, but if he puts it into practice, I write from ten to seven hundred good deeds. When he intends to commit an evil but does not do it, I do not record it, but if he does it, I only write down one evil. What a wonderful deal from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has given you in Islam. That if you think of an evil deed, you don't get a sin. If you do an evil deed, you get one sin. If you think of a good deed, you get a good deed. And if you do a good deed, you get from 10 to 700 times. And yet, Al-Imam Ibn Hazm said, I do not know how I will be able to be from the people of Al-A'raf whose good deeds and bad deeds are the same. And he said that after all of that, I can't imagine how I could do enough good deeds to be even from the people of Al-A'raf whose good deeds and bad deeds are the same. And that's the fear that a believer has. You see the difference between the fear and the hope? You read this chapter 59 and you have what? You have hope. That subhanAllah, every time I even think of an evil deed, nothing. If I do it, I get one deed. If I do a good deed, I get 700. You know, I'm thinking this is easy. But then you remember the fear of the deeds and then you remember that you have to balance yourself between fear and hope. Chapter 60. Clarifying the waswasa with regard to iman and what the person experiencing it should say. This is very important. And a lot of people... um, Ask about this in Rukia related questions. It's been narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah that some people from among the companions of the Messenger came to him and said, Indeed, we perceive in our minds what that which every one of us considers too grave to express. The Prophet said, Do you really perceive it? They said, Yes. He said, This is true faith or this is manifest faith. So this is referring to the shaitan giving you doubt in your iman. That you get that doubt in your heart. Something so bad that you feel that it's so grave you can't even bring yourself to ask a question about it. I get a waswasa in my iman. A waswasa about Allah. A waswasa about the truth of Islam that is so bad that I can't even ask a question about it. The Prophet said, do you really perceive it? He said, yes. He said, that is the true faith. That is the real faith. That is the manifest and clear faith. And in another narration, and I mentioned this on my website, on the article on Waswasa, the Prophet said, all praise is due to Allah who reduced the plot of the shaitan to this. That if you're aware that the companions experienced Waswasa in their iman, in their Islam, and they were with the Prophet so you shouldn't feel bad if you experience some Waswasa and some difficulty. At the end of the day, I I have a, a, a program on the website that I recommend that you do. The first thing I recommend that you do is you remember Allah. Why? Because when you remember Allah, 
Allah Azza wa Jal says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْا إِذَا مَسَّهُمْ طَائِفٌ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ تَذَكَّرُوا فَإِذَا هُمْ مُبْصِرُونَ Those people who are afflicted by a touch of the shaytan, they remember Allah and then they can see clearly. So if the shaytan starts whispering to you about your iman, remember Allah. Anything, subhanallah, alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar, la ilaha illallah, and the shaytan will go away. Then, no doubt a person should affirm their faith. Especially if you have a doubt in faith. One of the ways you can get over it is to say, رَبِيتُ بِاللَّهِ رَبَّ islami دِينَ وَبِمُحَمَّدٍ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ نَبِيًّا I'm happy with Allah as my Lord, and Islam is my religion, and Muhammad is my prophet. Why are you saying this? To emphasize that that was from the shaitan. It's not from me. رَبِيتُ بِاللَّهِ رَبَّ I'm happy with Allah as my Lord. And then the third thing is to make tawbah. Now I don't say you make tawbah because you committed a sin. Because you didn't. It was just a shaitan. And you're not called to account for what goes in your mind. However, the habit of making tawbah generally is a good habit to be in. And inshallah, it doesn't do you any harm. And the sahaba, you see them making tawbah from things they didn't actually themselves actually commit as a sin. But they feared it might be a sin, so they said, Astaghfirullah. Some people come and say, I feel I've left Islam. Why? Because I'm getting waswasa in my deen. This is your iman, it's not a lack of iman. Alhamdulillah, the one who reduced the plot of the shaitan to this. That the shaitan, instead of controlling you and doing all those things to you, he's only just whispering to you about your deen. Remember Allah, affirm your faith, so you can say, La ilaha illallah, or Radisu billahi rabba, or whatever it is that you say to affirm your faith, and repent to Allah for all of the mistakes that you might have made, and ask Allah to keep you away from the shaitan. Chapter 61. A warning of the fire for the one who swears a false oath in order to unlawfully take the right of another Muslim. This is again on the same topic as the major sins. It is narrated on the authority of Abu Umama that the Prophet ﷺ observed, He who takes or appropriates the right of a Muslim by swearing a false oath, Allah will make hellfire necessary for him and paradise forbidden for him. A person said to him, O Messenger of Allah, even if it is something insignificant, the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, even if it is the twig of the awak tree, even if it is the miswak, the siwak, that a person swore a false oath in order to get that from them. What do we mean by a false oath? They said, by Allah, that belongs to me. That siwak belongs to me. And they took it knowing that they were taking something illegally. And it's narrated on the authority of Abdullah ibn Umar that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, he who perjured with a view to appropriating the property of the Muslim and he is in fact a liar will meet Allah in a state that Allah will be angry with him. They came Ash'at ibn Qais and he said to the people, what does Abu Abdurrahman narrate to you? They replied, such and such a thing. He replied, Abu Abdurrahman told the truth. This has been revealed in my case. There was a piece of land in Yemen over which I and another person had a claim. I brought the dispute with him to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to decide. The Prophet said, can you produce an evidence in your support? I said, no. The Prophet said, then the decision will be made on an oath. I said, he will readily take an oath. I.e., he's going to cheat me by just giving an oath. The Prophet said, he who perjured for appropriating the wealth of a Muslim when he's a liar will meet Allah when he's angry with him. And, and then Allah revealed, indeed, those who sell Allah's covenant and their oaths for a small price. So this is to do with the major sin. And the same thing we say about this is the same thing we've said about all of the major sins with regard to hellfire being necessary 
and paradise forbidden uh, the meaning of this is no doubt that this is what the person deserves and that they will not enter with the early Muslims who enter into paradise unless Allah forgives them and the person forgives them and there is a story behind this and that is the story uh, regarding Ash'ath ibn Qais that he had some land in Yemen and of course his uh, companion who he was disputing with they had no proof for who the land or where the land boundary was or who the land belonged to maybe they were arguing over which part maybe this part belongs to me nor this part belongs to me or there's a river the river is on my side the river is on your side so he said there's no evidence so the Prophet said then I will take an oath you will, one of you will swear to Allah that this is my land and it seems here according to this that the land was in the possession of the other person and the reason why is the oath is taken from the one who has possession of the object and that's just the principle of fiqh that the oath is taken so for example if I come with a car and someone says you stole that car from me who is the one that is asked to make the oath the one making the claim or the one with the car the one with the car is the one asked to make the oath so the one with the car is said swear an oath that that car is yours why? Because of bara'at al-zimma Because the basic principle is That if you have something in your possession It's yours That's the basic principle Whatever you have in your possession is yours So now you have to make an oath that it's mine And not he can make an oath and take it off you Because the basic principle is That if it's in your possession it's yours Ash'at ibn Qais said This person is a person who will easily make an oath He's just going to swear by Allah Yeah I swear by Allah it's mine And he doesn't care so the Prophet ﷺ then mentioned the hadith that whoever tells a lie in court, i.e. commits perjury, in order to steal the wealth of a Muslim when he's a liar, will meet Allah when Allah is angry with him. And so it's a major sin. The evidence it's a major sin is that Allah is angry, that the hellfire is necessary, and that paradise is forbidden. So you could maybe underline or circle those three things. Those three things are evidence that it's a major sin. Maybe I would ask you a question in the exam, something like show you the hadith, Write you the hadith and say, show me the proof from this hadith that telling a lie in court is a major sin. The proof is either the paradise or the hellfire or the anger of Allah. All of these are proof that it's a, a major sin. And this also shows you that sometimes you can do a major sin over a very insignificant object and it can ruin your akhirah. Over a siwak, something the size of a siwak. You know, that, 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 basically that twig of the tree is on my side. No, that twig of the tree is on your side. And someone could go to the hellfire over the size of a twig. A piece of, a miswak, a siwak, that big. And that shows you the severity of these sins. And that the Muslim keeps away from them. And if there's any doubt, Allah, give it to the other person. Whatever it is, if there's any doubt, give it to the other person. Don't fall into this sin. If you have that doubt, give it to the other person. If you're certain of your right, take your right. But subhanAllah, sometimes you might think you're certain of it and then realize later on that you weren't certain of it. And that actually, oh, subhanAllah, I remembered. We did say that. You know, give your right. Give your right in this dunya and you will not come across anything bad in the sight of Allah on the, on the, on the day of judgment. But when people fight for their right you know, over a twig, then one of them ends up going to the hellfire because of a, of a siwak, something the size of a siwak. And Allahum Musta'an. Chapter 62, the evidence that the blood of the one who aims to seize other people's wealth without right may be shed and if he is killed he will be in the fire and that the one who is killed defending his property is a martyr. 
Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu reported that a person came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said, O Messenger of Allah, what do you think if a man comes in order to take my possessions? The Prophet sallallahu said, don't surrender your possessions to him. He said, if he fights me. The Prophet sallallahu said, fight with him. The inquirer said, what do you think if I am killed? The Prophet sallallahu said, you would be a martyr. The questioner said, what do you think of him if I kill him? The Prophet ﷺ said he will be in the fire. There are a number of aqidah points to deal with this uh, in this hadith that we need to go through. Um, this is the permissibility of an individual acting of their own accord in order to save their rights and their property. And this is different from this concept of defending your country or something like that because we talked about these issues being needing to be organized by the Waliul Amr and by the, the Supreme Ruler to, to organize the affairs of, of fighting and so on and so forth. But this is a personal issue of theft. Somebody comes and tries to, you know, carjacking. They try to take you out of your car and steal your car. The Prophet said, don't surrender your possession. The person said, if he fights against me, so I say, no, you can't have it. You can't take my car. I'm going to fight against you. He pulls a gun out against you and he starts to fight with you. The Prophet said, fight against him. If I am killed, what will happen? So he pulls a gun out and he shoots me and takes my car. If you're killed, you'll be a martyr. And if he is killed, he will be from the people of the hellfire. Will he be forever in the hellfire? No. Is it possible that Allah would forgive him if the person forgave him for that? Yes. Because at the end of the day, these are things are under the will of Allah. If He wills, He will forgive them. If He wills, He will punish them. But He is deserving of being in the hellfire. And of course, if the person doesn't forgive Him, then some sort of recompense must be made. Perhaps He wouldn't go to the hellfire, but perhaps all of His good deeds would be taken. And perhaps some of it, your bad deeds would be loaded onto Him. There has to be a recompense somewhere. But what I wanted to talk about here particularly is the word martyr. Because this is a word we use rather cheaply uh, these days. Uh, it seems that like, pretty much everyone who dies is a martyr. Uh, and we often use it incorrectly. First of all, the basic concept of a martyr is the one who dies making the word of Allah the highest and the word of those who disbelieve the lowest. That is the basic concept of a martyr. That is basically who a martyr is. And the martyr is the one who dies on the battlefield as part of a legitimate Muslim army. The martyr is not the one who kills themselves. The martyr is not the one who kills innocent people. The martyr is not the one who murders Muslims and non-Muslims without right. The martyr is not the one who dies taking away the life of someone who's been given protection by another Muslim. These are not martyrs. These are not martyrs, except they are martyrs in the way of the shaitan, as our Sheikh Abdul Muhsin said. Shaheedun fi sabil shaitan. Yani martyrs in the way of the shaitan. They're not martyrs in the way of Allah. The martyr in the way of Allah is the one who in a legitimate battle dies to make the word of Allah the highest and the word of those who disbelieve the lowest. That is a legitimate martyr. But there are some people who are connected to the martyr. Now they're not the same reward as the martyr. They're not at the same level of the martyr. But they are connected to the martyr because they gave a similar kind of sacrifice. So the one who dies of a disease of the stomach and the one who dies through drowning and the one who dies in a fire and the one who dies defending their property. These are not the same as the one who dies in the other circumstances, but they are related to them and similar to them. So we don't say they are the same in terms of their reward, but they are, you know, they are attached to them and they have a great reward uh, for them and they are considered to be shaheed. However, 
Why don't we say about somebody in our aqidah, he's shaheed? What are you testifying for that person when you say someone is shaheed? Jannah. You're testifying paradise. If he's shaheed, you just put him in jannah. Because the shaheed is from the people of jannah. So you don't say shaheed. You say shaheed insha'Allah. You don't testify paradise for anybody except for the one. And there's a very famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ when the Sahaba said about someone who died that he's shaheed. The Prophet ﷺ said, oh perhaps he was something else. And he kept on saying it, oh perhaps something else, or oh, perhaps something else. Meaning don't say about people they're shaheed. The one who the Prophet ﷺ said is shaheed, they're shaheed. You know like Uthman radiallahu an, like Ali radiallahu an. These people were shaheed. There's no doubt about that. But subhanAllah, as for uh, testifying shahada for someone who you don't know whether they were beloved to Allah or hated by Allah, you don't know anything about them. And the Sahaba testified shahada for one person who killed himself. And the Prophet said he's from the people of the hellfire. You don't testify paradise for anybody. And part of testifying paradise is martyrdom, saying he was a martyr, he was a martyr. But we say they were a martyr, inshallah. Somebody dies in a drowning, inshallah they were shaheed, inshallah. They die in a fire, inshallah they were a shaheed. They die from a disease of the stomach, inshallah they're shaheed. They died from uh, you know, defending their property from a robber, inshallah they were shaheed. They died defending another Muslim's rights, another Muslim was being attacked and they defended them and they died. Inshallah they were shaheed. But you don't testify paradise and hellfire for anyone except those who their situation is clear. Like the one who dies openly uh, stating their disbelief. Uh, or, you know, testify, we don't, or testifying those for those who the Prophet ﷺ testified for, like the Sahaba. Uh, radiallahu anhum. Chapter 63. The one in charge of a matter who cheats his subject deserves the hellfire. Again, look at Imam al-Nawwi. Look at the fiqh of Imam al-Nawwi. Take the word deserves and underline it or circle it. Because what is Imam al-Nawwi telling you? The same thing I've been telling you. That the ahadith that this guy is in the hellfire or this person is in the hellfire is all to do with what they deserve. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad paid a visit to Ma'qil or Ma'qil, or Ma'qil ibn Yasar al-Muzani in the illness of which he died. At this juncture, Ma'aqil said, I'm going to narrate to you a hadith which I heard from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and which I would have not transmitted if I knew that I would survive. Indeed, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, There is no slave who was entrusted with the affairs of his subjects and he died in such a state that he was dishonest in his dealings with those whom he ruled except that paradise is forbidden for him. This hadith is regarding the extreme importance of responsibility and fulfilling your responsibility. And there's no doubt the further you go up, the greater that responsibility becomes. And there is a huge, huge responsibility upon people who are entrusted to look after others, whether that is on a small scale or a large scale. And that those people who betray the people that they have been entrusted over that they are in a very, very difficult situation and that they uh, need to repent from that situation and to correct themselves because this is the situation of the person who is responsible for others. But again, what I want you to focus on here is that here it says Al-Wali. 
i.e. anyone who is responsible for a matter, in charge of a matter. So this applies from the top down to the bottom. If you're in charge of other people, you have a responsibility over other people, and you betray them, then you are committing a major sin. And the danger is that the hellfire is there. So think very carefully before you take on responsibility. And think very, very, very carefully uh, about the responsibility you have over other people. Whether that is a person in a company and you have employees and their wages and their money and their rights, be very, very, very careful. Be very careful because this is a very, very severe punishment for the one who betrays uh, them when they have been entrusted with something. And this also shows you the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That perhaps uh, a person would be unable to change this situation. You know, this poor person is... Uh, you know, living somewhere in the world and he's being oppressed and he can't change it but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will balance the matters out and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not let the oppression go so subhanAllah, you know, this person can't change it and we've talked about how he has no, he has no ability so he simply has to be patient and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will correct the, the affairs and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will defend those people who have no one to defend them and that's, uh, you know, this is a huge uh, responsibility on the people who have others that they are entrusted with. And that includes, you know, the father who is entrusted over his household. It includes the people who are entrusted over a small area or a masjid or a center or a company or an organization. At the end of the day, to a greater or a lesser degree, they are included. To a greater or a lesser degree, they are included. And subhanAllah, this is you know, something that we should take very seriously because I fear that people have a lot of good deeds. They do a lot of prayer, a lot of charity, a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of voluntary deeds, a lot of teaching, a lot of good. But the problem is that you've oppressed this person and oppressed that person and oppressed this person and this is a huge responsibility in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you have to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help you fulfill that responsibility and to put people around you who will help you fulfill that responsibility. And we talked about the value of sincere advice to a'immatil muslimin wa'ammatihim, to the rulers of the Muslims and the ordinary people. By having people around you who are sincere, about if you're in charge of a, a, a lot of people or you're responsible for a group of people or responsible for your family, about having people who advise you in good. And you know, part of this, if we're talking on the family scale, is the husband getting advice from his wife. And this is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that he would seek advice from his wives, that he would uh, ask them, uh, certainly regarding Umm Salama, it's well narrated, that the Prophet ﷺ sought her advice. I'm sure it was Umm Salama with regard to um, the treaty of uh, Hudaybiyah and them not being able to perform the Umrah. The Prophet ﷺ would seek advice. And at the end of the day, whenever you're responsible, it's very important you have people around you who are going to give you sincere advice, who are going to be good towards you, who are going to help you, going to support you, going to trip you up and pull you up when you, you know, like, when you make a mistake and say, no, that's wrong. Uh, and not that you surround your, yourself with yes men. And this is a problem. And especially, you know, for a lot of people in companies do it. A lot of directors do it. Uh, a lot of people in organizations do it. That they, they surround with people, with people who just are going to just simply agree with everything they say. And that doesn't bring you any khair. What brings you khair is bringing people, is having people like Umar ibn al-Khattab was for Abu Bakr. Someone around you who is going to pull you up and say to you, look, this isn't right, do it this way. 
and there's some sincere advice going there. And this applies in all spheres of life where you have a responsibility over other people and it tells you the severity of cheating. In general, cheating other people, whether it's in business, whether it's in you know, weight, cheating them with, with uh, you know, giving them bad dates uh, underneath, you know, when the people sell dates and they sell uh, produce like vegetables and fruits and they put the good fruits on the top and the bad fruits on the bottom. All of these types of cheating are from the major sins, but this one is the one that is particularly bad because of the authority you have over those people. I mean, if you're oppressing your children, what can they do to get out of that oppression? How are they supposed to get out? They're young kids. How are they supposed to find a way out of that oppression except by the help of Allah? So be very cautious over responsibility and be very cautious over who those people you are responsible over that you fulfill the trust towards them and help those people who have been given responsibility. We don't set other Muslims up to fail. Help people who've been given responsibility to fulfill their responsibility properly. Unsur akhaka, valiman aw madluma. Help your brother whether he is an oppressor or an oppressed. They said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, if he is oppressed, we know how to help him. But if he is an oppressor, how can we help him? The Prophet said, Stop him from his oppression. If you see that you have a friend and your friend has some authority over a certain group of people and you see that that person is not fulfilling it properly, give, stop them from doing it. Give them advice. Help them. Otherwise, you are going to be guilty of a sin yourself. And that is watching your Muslim brother make an error and make a mistake and watching your Muslim brother commit zulm and not doing anything to stop them from doing it and not doing anything to help them and support them uh, in this regard. Chapter 64. The disappearance of honesty and iman from some of the hearts and the appearance of fitna in some hearts. Hudayfa radiallahu an reported. And remember that Hudayfa is the secret keeper of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and Hudayfa is entrusted with the secrets of what is going to happen uh, or some of what is going to happen and the secrets of the munafiqeen. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, narrated to us two hadith. I have seen one come to reality and I am waiting for the other. He said, Trustworthiness descended in the innermost root of the hearts of the people. Then the Qur'an was revealed and they learned from the Qur'an and they learned from the Sunnah. Then the Prophet وسلم, told us about the removal of trustworthiness. He said the man would have a wink of sleep and trustworthiness will be taken away from his heart leaving the impression of a faint mark. He would again sleep and trustworthiness would be taken away from his heart leaving an impression of a blister as if you rolled down an ember on your foot and it became into a, a, a blister. He would see a swelling having nothing in it. I.e. that the blister has nothing in, you know, it, it's, it, there's a swelling, you've been burnt and it's swollen but there's nothing there, there's nothing inside of it. He then he took up a pebble, pebble and rolled it down his foot and said, People will enter into transactions among one another and hardly a person will be left who will return the things entrusted to him. And there will be such a lack of honest people until it would be said, In such and such a tribe there is a trustworthy man. And they would say about a person how prudent he is, how broad-minded he is, how intelligent he is, whereas in his heart there will not be faith even to the weight of a mustard seed. I have passed through a time in which I did not care with whom amongst you I entered into a transaction, for if he were Muslim, his faith would compel him to discharge his obligations to me, and if he were a Christian or a Jew, the ruler would compel him to discharge his obligations to me. 
but today I would not enter into a transaction with you except so-and-so and so-and-so. And this is Hudayfa, at the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'in. And what about our time today? They said we lived in a time when we didn't care who we did business with because everybody was trustworthy. If it was a Muslim, you could trust him to the end. That his faith, he's never going to betray. And if it was a Jew or a Christian, then the authorities would, the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali, they would make sure that they fulfilled their bargain. But now, there is no amanah. And subhanAllah, it's very sad that this is, you know, we have a portion of this. And Allahu Alam, is it going to get worse or is it, has it gotten worse? But it's certainly worse than it was in the time of Hudayfa radiallahu That you see a person praised for how intelligent he is, how prudent he is, how broad-minded he is. But in his heart, there's not even faith equal to a mustard seed. And that the amana is something that is going away. However, it's not for us, ya ikhwani, in this regard, to become defeatist and to say, oh, well, the amana is gone, I don't have any amana. These ahadith that talk about the amana being gone and knowledge being gone, these ahadith do not mean that there will be nobody left who will have amana or nobody left who will have knowledge. The Prophet said, لا تزال طائفة من أمتي على الحق ظاهرين There will not cease to remain a group of my ummah clearly upon the truth. Clearly upon the truth. So it's not that there will be no amana, but it's that there will be so little amana that it is as though there is no amana. It will not be that there is no knowledge, but there will be so little knowledge that it said if you go all the way over here, you'll find a tribe with a person, you know, one, there is one guy with some knowledge there. You know, that's how the situation you know, has or is becoming. And this is a situation, you know how many people betray and how many people cheat, and their deen doesn't stop them from it. And this is a lack of haya, because we said haya is something that stops you from doing the haram, and it stops you from dishonoring yourself in front of the people. So it's not for us to be defeatist. Allah has created us in the time He's created us, with the people He's created us with. And our job is to get over that, to do our best to be the best that we can be and to help others to be the best that they can be and be idhnillahi ta'ala even if on the scale of the whole ummah the amana has gone but within the scale of individuals and certain places the amana is still there and all praise is due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that will never ever go until the day of judgment so inshallah I want you to understand the ahadith that say there will be no knowledge there will be no amana there will be no fear of Allah these ahadith refer to the general situation and they don't refer to the fact that there will be nobody on the face of the earth with knowledge or nobody on the face of the earth with amana or nobody on the face of the earth with fear of Allah rather there will be people and make yourself one of them bi-idhnillahi tabaraka wa ta'ala chapter 65 clarifying that Islam started as something strange and will return to being something strange and it will retreat between the two masajid again on the authority of Hudayfa Hudayfa is the the secret keeper, the one who knew of the fitan and the trials that were going to come, radiallahu anhu arda. We were sitting in the company of Umar, radiallahu anhu, and he said, Who among you has heard the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, talking about the turmoil? Some of the people said, It is we who heard it. Upon this he remarked, Perhaps by turmoil you mean the unrest of a man with regard to his house or his neighbor. They said, Yes. 
Umar said such arrest, such an unrest would be done away with by prayer, fasting and charity. So Umar is among the companions. And Umar radiallahu anh is asking the question, which of you know about the fitna that is going to come? And the companions reply with a hadith to the fitna uh, of uh, a man with, is with regard to his household or his neighbor. And in some narrations, his wife and his children. And, and there are some other narrations, you know, his ch- or his children and his wealth. Maybe not his wife and his children. His children and his wealth. Umar says, it's not that that I'm talking about. This trial can be done away with prayer, fasting and charity. Your prayer, your fasting, your charity, this will get rid of this problem. But who among you has heard the Messenger وسلم, describing a turmoil which will come like the waves of the sea? Hudayfa said, the people hushed into silence. I.e. nobody knew of this trial except Umar and Hudayfa. Hudayfa replied, it is I. Umar said, uh, indeed, or Umar said, yes, well, your father was also very pious. I, Hudayfa, uh, who is Ibn al-Yaman, uh, radiallahu anhu. Hudayfa said, I heard the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, say, temptations will be presented to men's hearts as a reed mat is woven stick by stick, and any heart which is impregnated by them will have a black mark put onto it, but any heart that rejects them will have a white mark put onto it. The result is that there will be two types of hearts, one white like a white stone which will not be harmed by any turmoil or temptation as long as the heavens and the earth endure. And that is the evidence that there will always remain a group of people upon the truth. And the other black and dust-colored, like a vessel which is upset, not recognizing what is good or rejecting what is evil, but being impregnated with passion. Hudayfa said, I narrated it to him, to Umar. So Hudayfa is telling about this turmoil that is going to happen. This trial that is going to come. When the desires are going to be presented and the hearts are going to be divided into two. The white heart that rejects all of this evil and the black heart that accepts all of this evil. And then Hudayfa says to Umar, I narrated to Umar, there is between you and that a closed door, but there is every likelihood of its being broken. Now at this point, the companions do not know what Hudayfa is talking about. The only people who know what Hudayfa is talking about with reference to the door are Hudayfa and Umar. So they're having a conversation within a conversation. The hadith is understood by everybody. But Hudayfa says, Oh Amir al-Mu'mineen, don't you worry about it. There's a door between you and it. But the door is going to be broken. Umar said, will it be broken? Uh, this, you have been rendered fatherless. This is, uh, uh, this is uh, an expression. Yani, may your father, I, I don't know, I haven't got, if I can find the Arabic quickly, but may your father lose you or something along those lines. It's an expression, it's, it's not literal. It's something that is there just as an expression of, of uh, you know, emphasis and, and of, 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 of amazement that perhaps if this door is opened, it will be closed again. So right now, nobody, this is a conversation within a conversation. Hudayfa and Umar are on the same page. Everyone else is a little bit lost as to what Hudayfa and Umar are talking about this door that is going to be opened or closed or is it going to be broken. Hudayfa said, no, it will be broken. There is no chance of the door being opened. If it's opened, maybe it will be closed again. Hudayfa said, no, the door will be broken. And I narrated to him, 
That door implies a person who will be killed or die. There is no mistake in this hadith. In another wording of this hadith, the people came to Hudayfa after this. Because the door now we know, the door symbolizes somebody being killed. Because it's going to be broken. It's not going to be opened and shut like they're going to become ill and get better. They're going to be killed. And the people came to Hudayfa and said, What or who was the door? Hudayfa said, The door is Umar. The door was Umar. So Umar radiallahu knew that he was going to be killed. And Hudayfa knew that Umar was going to be killed. Because the Prophet ﷺ had told Umar that he was going to die the death of a martyr. And Hudayfa knew that he was going to be killed. And that is why when Umar is testing Hudayfa, maybe this door is going to be opened and shut. Hudayfa says, no, the door is going to be broken. That, this, that you are going to be killed and there, will be, there is nothing that can be done to stop the fitna. Yani the, the trials and tribulations are going to come when you die. And the people came to Hudayfa because they didn't fully understand the example and they said, who was the door? And Hudayfa said, the door was Umar. And uh, these terms in Arabic at the end of the hadith are one of the narrators asking, as the narrators used to do, asking what does this mean, what does that mean? They've already been translated for us uh, with white, uh, white like white stone and black and dust colored like a vessel which is upset. These two terms were asked about by the narrator. And that's the way of the students of hadith. When they would learn a hadith and they didn't understand some of the words, they would say, what does it mean? Um, uh, what does this word mean? Aswad. And what does this mean? Uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this other word in the hadith. Uh, it means a vessel that is turned upside down. It means black or, or extremely white and extremely uh, or whiteness inside of blackness or... They would explain it. But that's already been translated for us inside of the hadith. This hadith, of course, is talking about the fitan which happened after the death of Umar radiallahu anhu warda. And Umar radiallahu anhu was a person who stopped by the will of Allah and the grace of Allah was able to stop all of the plots of the munafiqeen. Every time the munafiqeen lit a fire for war, Umar put it out. That is the situation. Every time the munafiqeen tried to do something, Umar was there. They tried a plot, Umar is there. They tried to do something in another city, Umar is there. Allah made Umar a door that they could not break until he was assassinated uh, by uh, Abu Lu'lu al-Majusi and Umar radiallahu an passed away. And when he died and when he passed away, after that the munafiqeen found a great deal of success. And that is not because of anything detrimental about Uthman. And Uthman radiallahu an is the third of the best of the companions. However, it is to do with the fact that Allah made Umar by his decree the door that would stop these trials from crashing against the Muslims. And when Umar went, Allah decreed that they would be tested. And of course Uthman was entered into paradise because of the trials that he suffered. And that shows you the wisdom in what Allah decrees. Because the Prophet said that he will uh, let Uthman enter and give him the glad tidings of paradise for a trial that he will suffer. Or as he said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that Uthman would suffer a trial and that this would be one of the reasons that Uthman would be entered into Jannah. 
the trial that he would suffer. And Allah decreed that after the death of Umar, there would be many trials, one coming after the other, after the other, after the other. And Umar was the door that stood between them. And this, of course, is the um, uh, related to the same hadith that, uh, or related to another hadith, uh, as An-Nawawi mentions in the title, uh, that Islam began as something strange and it will return to being something strange. So Tuba and Tuba is either paradise in general or a tree at the highest part of paradise, Lil Ghuraba to the strangers. And that is something that we see and we witness in these days of ours. That Islam is slowly becoming something stranger and stranger and stranger. The number of Muslims are huge. You know, perhaps we've never ever had this many Muslims in the world. And Allah knows best. You know, so many Muslims. But Islam and really practicing Islam has become something strange. And that is why when you practice Islam according to the Sunnah, the people look at you as though you are practicing another religion. But Tuba, a tree in the highest place in paradise, Tuba lil Ghuraba. This tree is for the strangers, for those people who live in a time when Islam becomes something strange. And Allahu Alam, I believe that Imam Muslim will mention these ahadith within this uh, chapter. Al Imam Muslim mentions the hadith of the Ghuraba after this. So he mentions uh, from the hadith of Abu Huraira that Abu Huraira said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Bada al Islamu gariban wa sayyudu gariban wa sayyudu kama bada gariban fatuba lil Ghuraba. Islam began as something strange and it will return as something strange as it began or it would return strange as it began so Tuba for the Ghuraba so this hadith is something that uh, I think we missed out of the English version here unless it's on the next pages I think we missed it out of the English version but it is in Sahih Muslim after that they, or there is another hadith in this chapter from Sahih Muslim as well which is of benefit insha'Allah ta'ala which uh, is the hadith Inna al-Iman uh, that indeed Iman will return to Medina as the snake returns to its hole. Or Iman will uh, retreat to Medina as the snake retre- retreats into its hole. And that is from the virtue of Medina. And again, that doesn't mean Medina at every time, nor does it mean Medina you know, throughout history, as we said about Yemen. At a certain time, Iman will return to Medina. And maybe perhaps in Allahu Alam, this refers to the time of the Dajjal, when the fear of the Dajjal will not enter Medina and uh, the people of Medina, Medina will shake three times and all of the people will leave Medina of the hypocrites, men and women, and the majority of them will be from the women. And then Medina will be, this will be known as the day of purification. And perhaps it refers to this and perhaps it refers to before this, that the people will slowly retreat towards Medina and that Iman will slowly retreat towards Medina. And these are two hadith that you can, inshallah, read. Um, I'm sure they're on sunnah.com. Uh, which has Sahih Muslim in it and if you go to this particular chapter you'll be able to find the English of them and you can add it onto there inshallah so if you just make a note on it like something like plus two hadith or something like that just so that you're aware because the title of Al-Imam al-Nawawi doesn't relate too much to the hadith the first hadith that we read it relates to the other two the hadith that Islam began as something strange and the hadith that Islam that Iman will return or will retreat to Medina as the snake retreats into its hole. 
Chapter 66, the disappearance of faith at the end of time. It is narrated on the authority of Anas that indeed the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, The hour will not come until Allah, Allah is not said on earth. This refers to a period of time after the coming of Isa ibn Maryam السلام, back to earth. And for a period of time, everyone will be upon the religion of Islam and everyone will remain a Muslim and everyone will be in the best of circumstances and the earth will bring forth its produce and I remember in one of the narrations it's mentioned that there will be a pomegranate so big that so many men can take shade under its skin and so on and so forth so it will be a time of much barakah and then Allah will send the wind and I think we have the wind we have the wind mentioned in Sahih Muslim when, cha- when this wind blows this will take the soul of anyone who has any iman in their heart. And therefore, after that, there will only remain uh, the most evil of people, and those people will not remember Allah Azza wa Jal, nor will they perform, and nor will Allah take them to account for any of their deeds. Allah will not punish them for anything they do. Allah will leave them like that until the hour comes. And Allah Azza wa Jal, this uh, wallahu alam, this, appear, appear, this appears to me to be what is referred to in the hadith However, we should always be careful When we refer to events in the future That perhaps we might make a mistake And it may refer to another time But what I can understand from this From the explanation of the hadith Is it refers to this time Because otherwise, until then There will always be on the earth Somebody who will be speaking the name of Allah But after the wind is blown That is when there will be nobody on the face of the earth that will say the name of Allah and Allah Azza wa knows best. So you could maybe refer this piece on chapter 66 that say, see chapter 50. Permissibility of concealing one's faith in the case of fear. Hudayfa radiallahu anhu reported we were in the company of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he said, count for me those who profess Islam. We said, O Messenger of Allah, do you entertain any fear concerning us? And at this time we are between 600 and 700 in strength. The Prophet said, you don't perceive. You may be put to some trial. The narrator said, we actually suffered a trial so much that some of our men were constrained to offer their prayers in concealment. Uh, There are two things about this. First, the story, uh, which is to do with not believing. We talked about, do they feel safe of the plot of Allah? Just because you have a good number at that time, the companions were much bigger at that time, don't think that you won't be defeated or that you won't be uh, able or that you won't be uh, you know, trialed by Allah. Uh, but the purpose of this hadith is the being constrained to offer the prayers in concealment. That the Prophet ﷺ allowed some of the companions to conceal their Islam in the case of fear. And that is particularly relevant in our time today for new Muslims, especially at the very beginning, when they're in a very negative reaction, in a very negative circumstance, their parents would be very aggressive. If they want to conceal their Islam for a time until they feel comfortable about what they're doing, or if they want to show it to the Muslims but conceal it from their parents, it's permissible for them to do so. So this is a very relevant and a very important hadith uh, in that regard. Chapter 68, being kind to the one in whose iman there is a concern because of its weakness and the prohibition of attributing iman to someone without definitive evidence. Sa'ad narrated on the authority of his father, Abi Waqqas, that the Messenger of Allah distributed shares of booty among the companions. 
I said, O Messenger of Allah, give it to so-and-so, for verily he is a believer. The Prophet ﷺ said, or a Muslim, i.e. perhaps he is a Muslim. I, the narrator, repeated the word believer three times. And the Prophet ﷺ turned his back on me. He's showing his upset. He's upset with him. And he keeps saying, a Muslim. Then said, I bestow this to this man out of apprehension, lest Allah should throw him prostrate into the fire of hell, whereas in fact the other man is dearer to me. Two things you need from this hadith. The first is the difference between the Muslim and the believer. In this hadith, the believer is the one who does all of the commands of Allah and avoids all of the prohibitions. And the Muslim is the one who entered Islam. We understand that. Everyone remembers that from the previous, uh, from the previous hadith. So when he is saying he is a believer, he's basically saying that this is a person who has all of the attributes of obedience to Allah and none of the attributes of disobeying Allah. The Prophet ﷺ cautioned him and said, perhaps he's a Muslim. Maybe he's doing sins you don't know about. Perhaps he's a Muslim. He's a believer. Perhaps he's a Muslim. And then the Prophet ﷺ turned his back on him. So this is the permissibility of saying Allah with regard to Iman as opposed to the opinion of the Mutakallimun who many of them said that uh, you're not allowed to say Allah with regard to your Iman. Rather you are allowed and it's, uh, it is from the Sunnah to say I am a believer Allah, or he is a believer Allah, because you can't say for certain that somebody does everything Allah commanded them to do and doesn't do any sins. He's a believer, insha'Allah. Insha'Allah. Unless you use the believer in the term Muslim, as in all believers, my brother believers, my brother, you know, you're a Muslim, you're a believer, that's different. But when you're using it to mean believer, as in in contrast to Muslim, you use insha'Allah. But you don't use insha'Allah with regard to Muslim. So there's no insha'Allah with regard to being a Muslim, there's an insha'Allah with regard to being a mu'min. Why? Because a Muslim means you've become Muslim. And you can't have doubt in it. You can't say, oh, I don't know if I'm a Muslim. Insha'Allah, I might be a Muslim. I might have said, la ilaha illallah, I don't know if I did or I didn't. No, you're a Muslim. But a mu'min, insha'Allah. Because you don't know that you do everything that Allah told you to do and you avoid everything that Allah told you not to do. And here as well as Imam al-Nawi, uh, said uh, is the uh, concern for the person who has weak iman that the Prophet ﷺ gave wealth to this individual even though he was weak in his iman even though he, he had some sins that he was doing and some disobedience to Allah but the Prophet ﷺ gave him some wealth in order to bring him closer into Islam and to help him to practice and so this is a general principle of having concern over your Muslim brothers when they are in weak iman not slapping them down, not turning away from them, not, not casting them away, not making them an outcast, but helping them and encouraging them and bringing them into the fold as the Prophet ﷺ did. And it also shows you that you don't know for sure the state of people and you shouldn't get in the habit of overly praising people without uh, knowledge. And if you do, you should say, this is what I think and Allah knows best. Last one, chapter 69. Increasing the heart's tranquility. Increasing 
the heart's tranquility and the Arabic is bitavahir al-adillah by the evidence being made clear to you maybe that is the right word or, the ev- or multiple pieces of evidence uh, being made clear to you or getting additional evidence something like that the word tabahur is something becoming apparent and it, more than one evidence being given to you that strengthens it. So it's about strengthening uh, your, your tranquility by listening to the evidence and the proof for something or by getting additional proof that makes your heart find rest. It's narrated on the authority of Abu Hurairah that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, we have more claim to doubt than Ibrahim salam, when he said, My Lord, show me how you will make, how uh, you bring the dead uh, to life. When Allah said, Do you not believe? He said, Yes, but so that my heart may rest at ease. The Prophet وسلم, said, May Allah have mercy on Lut. He wanted a strong support, and if I had stayed in the prison for as long as Yusuf stayed, I would have responded to the one who invited me. This is from the humility of the Prophet Because in reality the Prophet would not have responded to the one who invited uh, him with regard to the prison. It's referring to the man who came and said, come to the king. And Yusuf said, I will not come to the king until you go to the king and ask him what is the situation of the women who cut their hands. I.e. until you prove me innocent, I will not come out of the prison. The Prophet would have stayed longer than Yusuf because he was more pious than Yusuf and more beloved to Allah than Yusuf. And he would have been stronger than Lut. And he would have been stronger than Lut. But the humility of the Prophet is he's looking through the Prophets and asking Allah to have mercy on them and asking Allah to forgive them. And he's doing so out of his humility and looking at that you know what they went through, I couldn't have survived it. But the Prophet ﷺ, no doubt, was the more deserving to have survived it than them. However, the purpose of this is that Ibrahim asked for additional evidence that Allah can bring the dead to life. Ibrahim asked Allah for additional evidence that he could bring the dead to life. However, he didn't do so because of a lack of iman. But he wanted to find his heart's rest and to increase his iman through seeing apparent and clear evidence and evidence being made clear to him. You know, things being made clear to him. So that his heart would find rest and his iman would find an increase. And so there's no harm in you asking for additional evidence in order for you to find uh, tranquility in your heart. Uh, and there is uh, no harm uh, uh, in you um, finding peace and tranquility in getting additional proof for an opinion that you have. That is essentially what Al-Imam al-Nawawi uh, is saying. And the Prophet said, we have more claim to doubt than Ibrahim. As in, the Prophet is being very humble. He's saying that, you know, like Ibrahim had a doubt and, and I feel I should have more doubt than him. And yet he did not, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
You know, Ibrahim had needed a bit of extra evidence, and I feel that I would be even more than that. And, and Lut needed strength, and I feel that I would be even more in need of that. And Yusuf stayed in the prison, and I'm not sure that I could have stayed in the prison. And that's all from the humility of the Prophet And as for the reality of the situation, is the Prophet would have had less uh, doubt than Ibrahim, and would have been stronger than Lut, and would have stayed in the prison longer than Yusuf But from his humility, he is expressing that uh, admiration for what those prophets did. And of course the evidence that Imam al-Nawi has here is the permissible or the permissibility of increasing the iman in the heart and the tranquility in the heart through seeing a clear and apparent evidence being made uh, for you. And there's no harm in a person uh, doing this, asking for additional evidence or looking for additional evidence in order to bring themselves or to make themselves firmer and to increase their confidence in the position that they have taken. And then there only remains to conclude and say, Alhamdulillah, alladhi bi ni'matihi tatimmu salihat. That all praises to Allah by His grace uh, has made it easy for us to complete uh, this task. I know we missed the chunk of the major sins out, but I feel that that's a good thing for you to read. And inshallah, you, you, you covered them of the overwhelming majority of the stuff. Um, some of the brothers were saying, sometimes a little bit fast, I apologize, I'm just trying to get to the end of it and, you know, inshallah, you got what you got and what you didn't got, the camera got, inshallah, what you didn't get, the camera got, and again, just to, to extend my thanks to the brothers at Kalima uh, for organizing this course and for, you know, putting the effort in, it has been incredibly beneficial for me, so at least I benefited even if none of you did, but I found it incredibly beneficial, uh, your questions have been very, very good. And again, uh, you know, to all of the brothers and the sisters, uh, if I've said anything that is correct or whatever I've said that is correct, then there's no one to praise except Allah Azza wa Jal. And if anything has been said that is wrong, then there's no one to blame except Muhammad Tim and the effect of the shaitan. And we ask Allah Azza wa Jal to make up for our shortcomings. And he is Al-Jabbar, the one who makes up for the shortcomings that people have. And again, to thank all of the brothers and sisters who came and sat for such a long time and you know you guys made a massive effort and may Allah increase you and I in knowledge and may Allah teach us what benefits us and benefit us with what he teaches us and increase us in knowledge and we hope that it won't be too long before inshallah ta'ala I'm able to come back and we're able to do another book from perhaps the Kutub al-Sitta or perhaps from the same book and Allah knows best Jazakumullahu khayran wa barakallahu feekum subhanakallahum wa bihamdik ashadu an la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk I will take a question from the brother over there. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brother. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa Brother, I want you to uh, again clarify about the lesser shirk and the major shirk. Because uh, the shirk which is related to the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, is there any in, in that any concept of lesser or the major? Just want you to clarify that, please. Jazakallah khair. Yes, there's no doubt that there's a concept of, of lesser and greater. And that is because there are some things that are mentioned as shirk by the Prophet And yet he did not take the people outside of Islam by them. And he did not require them to take their shahada again. And he did not rebuke them as being disbelievers. And he did not carry out the, uh, the command or the punishment of apostasy. Even though uh, he وسلم, said that what they did is shirk. 
And this is a matter of agreement among all of the scholars of Islam that shirk is divided into the shirk that takes you outside of Islam and the shirk that doesn't take you outside of Islam. And we said that it's very limited. The Prophet ﷺ actually said minor shirk, lesser shirk in a hadith. Regarding riya, he said that this is a shirk al-khafi, this is the hidden shirk. And that this is the shirk al-asghar, this is the lesser shirk. And I'm almost certain, and again it's difficult for me to quote in a question, but I'm almost certain that the word asghar was used in the hadith. Al-khafi is used, a shirk al-khafi. And as far as I remember, in another wording of the hadith, a shirk al-asghar, this is the lesser shirk. This is the shirk which is less than the shirk which takes you outside of Islam. And of course there is consensus that a person who shows off doesn't leave Islam by showing off. And so that shows us that, and, and by lesser I was very clear, that by lesser I don't mean that it's insignificant. I just mean that it doesn't take you outside of Islam. So in that sense it's lesser than the one that is, is greater, but, but no doubt it is still extremely, extremely great. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Is there a question from the sister's side? Assalamualaikum. Um, I have two brief questions. One with regards to making du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, I've heard some elders saying that when you make du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, it's okay to say, because Allah loved, uh, loves Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and his family, it's okay to make du'a saying, um, oh Allah, out of your love for the Prophet uh, and his family members, please grant this or this to me. I'm not sure if uh, this is the right way of making du'a and um, I just want to clarify, you know, if someone makes du'a in this way, is this ascribing partners with Allah? And, uh, sorry, just one more question. With I, regards maybe I can answer that one first before I forget. Okay, no then, problem. And then you can ask your second one, inshallah. Uh, this is not a permissible way of, way of making du'a and it's not shirk. It doesn't take you outside of Islam, but it's not a permissible way of making du'a. And it's actually really rude towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to say to Allah, Oh Allah, I ask you by the virtue of your Prophet. Or I ask you by the virtue of, of uh, you know, the Ahlul Bayt or something like this. This is very, very rude towards Allah because you're, you're bringing those people up to a level where you can use them as leverage against Allah. And that's not true. And it was never done by any of the companions, nor was it done by the Prophet sallallahu and this is a form that is not allowed. However, it's an innovation rather than shirk because you, you are asking Allah, you're not asking the Prophet um, What is permissible in tawassul, briefly, is tawassul with your good deeds. Oh Allah, I have believed, so forgive me. And this is mentioned in the Quran. Rabbana innana amanna, faghfir lana dhunubana wa qina adab nar Oh Allah, we have believed, so forgive us our sins. Uh, and like the people in the cave who said, oh, that to move the, uh, oh Allah, I did such and such a good deed, move, and the stone was moved from the cave. Uh, likewise, tawassul by the aim that you want. O oh Allah, give me wealth so that I can spend it in your sake. O oh Allah, give me health so I can worship you. And likewise, tawassul by Allah's names and attributes. So saying that, O oh Allah, you are Al-Ghafoor, so forgive me, you, so have mercy on me, or forgive me. You are Al-Rahman, have mercy on me. You are Al-Jabbar, so make up for my mistakes, and so on and so forth. Uh, these are permissible kinds of tawassul. And all of the permissible kinds of tawassul are mentioned in the Quran let alone the sunnah. All of them are found in the Qur'an. However, this, is, this tawassul by the honor of the Prophet ﷺ is not found in any ayah of the Qur'an or in any of the ahadith except one. And this hadith is misunderstood. Uh, that one of the companions asked the Prophet ﷺ to make dua. He said, oh Messenger of Allah, make dua. I'm going to paraphrase it very quickly. He said, Messenger of Allah, make dua for me. So the Prophet ﷺ made dua. He said, oh Allah, I ask you by your Prophet. 
i.e. by the dua that your Prophet made, not by your Prophet itself, because none of the companions did this. Not even one, not even when the rain came, and of course when the, the rain didn't come and they brought Al-Abbas, they said to Al-Abbas, you make dua, in, now the Prophet ﷺ is gone. We, when the Prophet ﷺ was alive, we sought his help, uh, we sought the help of Allah through him to ask for the rain. And now that he is dead, they didn't say, let's ask Allah by the virtue of the Prophet ﷺ. They said, we're asking you, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, to make dua for us. And so the, another kind of tawassul that it's permissible is to ask someone else uh, to make dua for you. Um, but uh, as for asking Allah by the honor of this or the honor of that or the virtue of this or the virtue of that, it's not permissible uh, for somebody to make dua like this. What's your second question? We'll take a quick question from the brothers real quick. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, when we were covering chapter 35, you mentioned regarding uh, uh, the salah, that uh, if someone abandons it, uh, basically Imam Ahmed told that it's a disbelief. Uh, what about people, for example, in Ramadan, they get back on track, they start praying five times, and then after Ramadan, unintentionally, they stop again. And especially the second condition, for example, new Muslims or young people, you know, they uh, try to do like three, four salahs, and you know, when they're depressed, they go back to one. When their iman is high again, they go back to five. So, is this permissible for these both people, the Ramadan ones, and the new Muslims and you know young Muslims, basically? There's no doubt that it's not permissible. But the question is, does it take them outside of Islam or not? If the young person is younger than puberty, then it doesn't. There's no there, there's no issue on this because they are commanded to pray, and if they fall short, they're not accounted for their deeds. If they're older than puberty, they're the same as an adult, and there's no difference between them and an adult. Even if they are 15 or 16 or 17, there's no difference between them and an adult. As for the new Muslim, there's no doubt that some allowance is made for the new Muslim at the beginning. And again, I don't want to give that allowance out you know, without a dalil. There isn't, but, but the new Muslim needs to make the effort and inshallah they're going the right way. But at the end of the day, nobody wants to die praying three prayers or four prayers. Everybody wants to die having prayed five. So the Ramadan is difficult. You do go up in Ramadan and then down afterwards. But at the end of the day, I can't guarantee something to you that Allah hasn't given. Uh, and I only can say that a person needs to try their best before the time comes when Allah takes their soul and nobody wants to be in the situation where Allah takes their soul and they're praying four times a day or three times a day, whether they're a new Muslim or whether they're an old Muslim or whether they are a young Muslim, inshallah. But at the end of the day, you know, a person does the best they can and tries the best they can, and inshallah, you know, Allah will make it easy for them to be able to pray their five daily prayers, inshallah. Okay, uh, last question from the sister's side, uh, and then uh, we'll be done, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, I just have a question regarding the angels. Do they write our thoughts, or do they only write our speech and our deeds? That's a very, very good question. It's a very intelligent question, mashallah, tabarakallah, Allahumma barik. That's a very intelligent question. I mean, and this is something that the scholars of Islam differed over. Um, they differed over whether or not the angels write our thoughts and we're just not taken to account for them, or whether they don't write them at all, or whether they write some of them, but they don't write all of them. And I would answer this by saying that really we don't have a dalil one way or the other, and Allah knows best, but we do know that the angels write some of our thoughts because they write the good thoughts that we have that are intentions and they write down our intentions. So we know that the angels do write down some of our thoughts. Do they write down all of them but then Allah only takes us to account for the ones that we said? Or do they not write down them at all? Allah knows best. We don't really know the answer but we do know they write down some because they write down the good intention that you do that you don't follow up. 
So we know, we know they write down some, do they write down all? Uh, Sheikh Saleh Sindi, when he dealt with this issue in the Jamia with us, I think as far as I remember, he came to the conclusion that Allah knows best. He didn't give us a, an answer to it, and he said there isn't really an evidence uh, one way or the other. But this is a mas'ala, or an issue that the scholars of Islam dealt with in Aqidah, with relating to the angels. Do they write down all of the deeds, or do they write down some of the deeds? Uh, uh, this is one of the things that is, there's a, a long, long discussion on. And I think that there isn't really an evidence one way or the other, except that they, we know that they write some of them at least, and Allah knows best. Rasulullah said, whoever does not thank the people does not thank Allah. We would like to thank Islamic Affairs and the Charitable Activities Department for giving us the permission to host this uh, weekend seminar. We'd like to thank Al-Baraha Hospital for giving us the use of this uh, excellent auditorium. Uh, we would like to thank the employees, organizers and volunteers at Kalima for all the hard work that they've put in to facilitate this seminar. And most importantly, we'd like to thank our esteemed uh, teacher, uh, our Ustad Muhammad Tim Humble. Uh, we ask Allah to increase his knowledge, we ask Allah to raise his rank, and we ask Allah to give him the tawfiq to keep on helping the Muslims and benefiting Islam. Uh, we end this seminar with the same dua that we started with, uh, O Allah, we beg you for the intercession of your Prophet on the Day of Judgment. O Allah, we beg you for the intercession of your Prophet on the Day of Judgment. O Allah, we beg you for the intercession of your Prophet on the Day of Judgment. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.